The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Martin Marty Talby, P-E-P-G. He's the Vice President of Business Development at Menard USA, and we're going to be talking about WIC trains, what they are, how do they work, and what are some of the challenges associated with installing WIC trains. It's not easy for us busy geotechnical engineers to keep up with industry trends while keeping up with our engineering work. Therefore, it's our goal of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast to help you do just that. We strive to keep our listeners informed on important industry topics and also to educate you on interesting technical topics and trends in the geotechnical world. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. And with that, let's jump right into today's episode. Before we go on here, I would like to take a minute to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Menard USA. Do you have projects where you are faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, platforms, and more. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardusa.com. That's www.menardusa.com. Welcome to the show, Marty. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. How about yourself, Jared? Doing well. I'm excited about this conversation. When I saw you on the list for the schedule, I saw this is going to be great. Well, I appreciate that because I've really been enjoying your podcast. I'm honored and happy to be here. Thanks. It'd be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, Marty. What is it that you do on a daily basis? My background is I'm a geotechnical engineer, and I work with Menard USA, who is a specialty ground improvement contractor. We're based out of Pittsburgh, but we have offices nationally, and we're part of a large uh, international group. And my role is business development. So as vice president of business development, I get involved with special initiatives. I follow certain key national accounts. The way that we're structured, we have a number of different regional offices. The regional offices tend to do, or they all do, their own business development in their region, but I help to coordinate and support those activities across the company. And I also look after our marketing and communications for the company. I get involved with uh, writing and presenting technical papers. I attend conferences. 
I do lunch and learn presentations. And on the WIC train side, and the reason why I'm talking about WIC trains and interested in them is that when I came to Menard in 2004, at that point, I was put in a role of bidding and managing WIC train projects. And ultimately, I developed to the point where I was uh, managing our WIC train division. So I'm still involved in WICTRAN projects because I'll still review some of the larger or more challenging WICTRAN projects, or when there's technical issues or questions about WICTRANs, I'll get brought in. So my position, it's a really nice mix of being involved with operational activities, but also business development. So there's the creative part of that associated with marketing. So it's a lot of fun, but still get to be involved with projects. So it's a really, really nice mix for me. I feel you know, very fortunate. But the business development, is that something that you kind of sought out or was this an opportunity that was presented in front of you and you said yes? Because as Geotex, I don't think we have a class on business development. We don't. And uh, many of us uh, geotechnical engineers, particularly myself, we're not uh, inherently or naturally business development people. And so it's something, again, it didn't come natural, but I really enjoy it. I enjoy the business development aspect of what I do and of our work. And you had asked you know, how I got into that. Actually, I was doing business development in another company, actually one of our sister companies, Nicholson Construction. Prior to working at Menard, ultimately I came to Menard, as I mentioned, in, in 2004, and I was brought over to do business development. There was actually a need for someone to get involved with WIC trains. So I was hired to do business development, but actually became involved with the WIC train business. I'm very fortunate and grateful that I had that opportunity to get involved with WIC trains. And you mentioned WIC trains, and that's really what our focus is going to be for this episode. For context, we have people that are listening in that are still in school, right? Undergraduate students, grad students, PhD students. We have folks that have been in the industry. We have folks that are on the edges of geotechnical engineering, like structural engineers. And we have people that have no idea about engineering at all that are just curious to listen in or, or watch. But in your own words, what can you tell us about what WIC trains are and how do they work? I'll keep the description fairly basic if I can, but in basic terms, there's some soils that when you place fill upon them, they experience issues because there's poor pressure building up in those soils. So in particular, this would be slow-draining, fine-grained soils. So typically clayey soils that when you start placing fill on top of them, when they're saturated, it takes a long time for the pore pressures to dissipate. You could place that same fill on top of a sandy or granular soil, and the pore pressures dissipate almost immediately. So with granular soils, the settlement is more immediate, but with clay soils, the settlement takes a long time. And that's called consolidation settlement. And consolidation settlement can take years or even decades to occur. And sometimes preloads or surcharges are used to prepare a site. So if you have a site with a saturated clay soil, you might bring in a pile of soil and let it sit until the settlement is kind of taken out of the clay. 
And again, that can take a long time because, you know, clays are very low permeability and it takes a long time for the water particles to flow through the clay. So wick drains are installed in order to shorten the drainage pathway and to help speed up that consolidation process. So wick drains are just thin plastic prefabricated drains. They're typically four inches wide by an eighth of an inch thick. They're typically comprised of a plastic core that has, you know, typically their channels or fins in it, and it's wrapped or encased or bounded by a geotextile fabric, which acts as a filter to prevent funds from migrating into the drain. And we mobilize either cranes or more typically large excavators with a mast, and that mast has a hollow tube or what we call a mandrel. We would insert the wick drain material into the mandrel and push the mandrel into the ground, retract the mandrel, leaving the wick drain in the ground. We're typically installing wick drains, I'd say, on average between you know three feet to eight foot on a center to center spacing. On most projects, we install them in a triangular grid pattern. And wick trains are, are best used in association with a preload or surcharge, again, where you're placing fill or piling up soil. They're used a lot for land reclamation projects. Sometimes they're used under earthen structures like dams and, and levees, where you're, you know, that's what the project entails is just placing fill. And if that fill is being placed on soft ground, then in many cases, wick drains would be used to expedite the consolidation settlement. Wick drains are also, in addition to speeding up the settlement, they help the soils gain strength as they're consolidating. So there are some corollary benefits of enhancing stability under slopes and embankments when wick drains are used. Talk a little bit about the wick train design. How is it designed and who's typically responsible for doing that design? The wick train design, it's typically based on selecting the right design, but you're also looking at a preload or surcharge height. You can do a couple different things to speed up the consolidation settlement. So one of those things would be to tighten up the spacing. But you could also increase the fill height, so the height of the preload or surcharge. So typically, the design is also accounting for or looking at the schedule and the economics of the project because you know it costs money to place fill, it costs money to install wick drains. So you're looking at that right mix of what's the preload or, or surcharge height what's the right spacing. So it's kind of a, an iterative process where you're looking at, at some different factors. Wick trains are, one thing that makes them somewhat unique is that as opposed to most of the other ground improvement technique, wick trains are used to speed up settlement. And if you think about all of the other ground improvement techniques, wick trains are typically used to mitigate settlement. That's a little bit unique and different about wick trains. Then another thing that's different is that wick trains are typically best designed by the project's engineer as opposed to the installer. Most of the other techniques lend themselves nicely to design-build approaches where the installing contractor is providing the design for that technique. But there's a lot of variables associated with wick trains the soil properties that are necessary to predict settlement and consolidation time 
are very difficult to nail down. So specifically, that would be the C sub H, which is typically indirectly derived or estimated from the C sub V. So you have some difficulties in just defining the parameters. And then there's other variables that are outside of the scope or control of the WIC train installer, such as how quickly the fill is going to be placed, you know, working elevations, unit weight of fill. And with WIC train programs, you know, we always recommend that, yes, you've installed WIC trains, but you still want to monitor the pore pressure and settlement. And that's really how you determine when to remove the preload or when to remove the surcharge or when you can put your structure in place, when you can top the road off on that embankment by monitoring the settlement, making sure that that's basically stabilized and settled out, and also making sure by using piezometers and monitoring pore pressures that the pore pressures have dissipated. And how long have WIC trains been used in the U.S.? Prior to, you know, say the 1970s, and actually going back to about the 20s, sand drains were the predominant technique for expediting consolidation settlement. They were used commonly under embankments for, you know, highway jobs. But there are some issues with sand drains in terms of the cost, the amount of uh, sediment that was generated in the installation process. And really, WIC trains, you know, starting in the 70s, with the development of geosynthetics and the development of the wick train in its current form, which is a plastic core encased or wrapped with uh, geotextile fabric, that really came into prominence in the, in the United States in the late 70s and, and 80s. Wick train in their current form were, were installed, again, late 70s, early 80s, and really by the probably mid-80s in the United States, wick trains had all but uh, replaced sand drains. And with the drains, I mean, you're providing a drainage pathway, right? So sometimes you're bringing water to the surface, so you have a gravel layer up top, or what type of things are you doing to control water up top once it gets there? With wick trains, you're exactly right. You're typically bringing water up to the surface, although the amount of water can vary. Sometimes you don't get water at the surface. If you happen to extend the wick trains into an underlying granular or layer, so below the consolidating layer, or if there are intermittent sandier granular layers, or what we see a lot of is uh, overlying fills. So at the surface, you might have a granular or more open soil. And the water might not make it to the surface, but when it does, you're right. You do need a, a way of receiving that water. And the most common way is a, a drainage blanket, which would be typically sand, or sometimes we see an open stone layer that's installed. And that layer is very helpful to us as installers because not only does it receive the water, but that provides a good working platform for us. I mean, I've had some you know, earthwork projects that are in urban areas and the fill is feels kind of hard to get through. Have you had projects where you had to pre-drill before lowering the mandrel? Yeah, too many of them because that's always the uh, most difficult part. And that's the most expensive part of installing wick trains is if you have to pre-drill because the cost of pre-drilling is much more than the cost of uh, installing wicks. So you hit it right on the head. You know, that is a common issue. We do pre-drilling for a couple of different reasons, Jared. 
One would be like the situation that you cited, which is where you have an overlying rubble or fill or just otherwise dense layer. Sometimes there's naturally dense or very stiff layers at the surface, but we also see, especially in the Northeast and Midwest, a lot of sites with urban fill, right? So we have to get through those layers. And wick drains were developed in order to treat soft soil. So we're using a long, skinny mandrel to push wick drains into the ground. And so they don't uh, do well when you have a stiffer or, or dense or obstructed layer. So you're right. We do have to fairly commonly pre-drill to facilitate the insertion of the mandrel. We've seen, and probably more recently, Jared, we're seeing projects where it's a very stiff profile, like the entire soil profile is pretty stiff, and we actually have to pre-drill that entire length. We've done projects where we have to pre-drill you know, 50 feet to install a 50-foot drain, and when you're pre-drilling that deep, that really makes me ask a couple questions, which would be, if you have to work that hard to install the drain, do you really need it, right? So do you need WIC drains and do you need anything? Do you need any type of ground improvement? And if so, are WIC drains the right technique? It just might not be the right technique if you're having a pre-drill full length, but we do have to do it from time to time. You kind of touched on this a little bit before, but just to, you know, I think it's helpful to just ask the question, you know, what types of soils are wick trains installed in and what type of structures are they installed for? As I mentioned, Jared, it's fine grain, slow draining soil. So that's primarily going to be clays, but sometimes silts or, you know, very commonly silty clays. And then also sludges or tailings, that's another kind of common application for wick drains, fine grain, you know, dredged materials that are slow draining. So in general, it's just slow draining soils would be the general type of soil that wick drains are installed in. And then in terms of the type of structures, you know, wick drains have a long history of use in transportation projects. So that would be, you know, mainly highway embankments, particularly when the embankments are being built on soft, compressible ground. So and that would mitigate long-term settlement issues for those roadways and also help with the stability during the construction of the embankment. So transportation structures, we use WIC trains a lot in conjunction with preloads for storage tanks. We do that a lot in the Gulf Coast. So it's very common where you have like large, uh, very open storage terminals and very soft ground that before the tank is constructed, you know, a sand blanket is placed, we install the wick drains, and then a soil preload is brought in to basically sit on site for anywhere from 45 to 90 days on average. And during that time, the soils are consolidating. Once you get the desired settlement out of the soils, you remove the preload and you build your tank. And the idea is that that ground has already seen the simulated stresses that it's going to see during the service of the tank. It saw that in the form of the soil preload. Transportation structures like embankments, tanks, very commonly used for land reclamation projects. So large port projects where they're filling in slips or otherwise, you know, placing fill on soft uh, bay materials. So both the dredged materials or the pumped in material 
both those and the underlying soft bay materials need to be treated. So it's another very common application for wick trains. Then also, you know, general buildings and structures, we still do projects where, you know, wick trains are used to speed up the settlement for a preload for a one or two story structure. So wick trains would not be used for high rises, certainly. And even I'd say mid rises, you know, in terms of buildings, we'll do wick trains for, you know, buildings that are maybe one, two, or maybe three stories max. But beyond that, the loads are getting too heavy and it's uh, a wick train and preload program wouldn't be practical at that point. No, that makes sense. And I have to imagine for those dredging sites and land reclamation projects, you have the additional challenge of, you know, you might need a working platform just to get your equipment in to install the wick trains. And then it's like, do I have to pre-drill through the working platform? It says uh, it's a bit of a dance you have to do here, right? To get it right. Yeah, it is. Fortunately, with the wick trains, you know, what we've seen is that in most cases, a sand blanket is enough for us. And it's good because, yeah, that works out well with the incorporation of that drainage blanket into the project. So usually like a 12 to 18 inch sand blanket is good. Now, with very soft soils, we might need to place some, have some geotextile fabric placed first before that sand or maybe even geogrid. But usually the sand is fine. In extreme conditions, we might need grid and then a layer of stone and then sand on top or just work off of that stone. As long as that working platform isn't more than, say, three feet thick, if it was, you know, let's say it was four or five feet thick and compacted stone, then we'd need to pre-drill. In terms of being able to penetrate without pre-drilling, I would say in most cases of the working platform, as long as it's not, you know, too coarse, if it's, you know, less than three feet, we're typically fine. But it's definitely a consideration. It's definitely important to have those discussions with the installer. And um, as an engineer or a specifier, the working platform is, is a huge consideration, not just for WIC trains, but really for any ground improvement or deep foundation system. It's something that should be considered. You hit it right on the head. You don't want to put something in place that creates more work. It's a balancing act. You want a good platform, but does that platform need to be drilled through? We have had some projects where lime treatment or shallow soil mixing has been done to the point that the upper soils are very stiff and we'd have to come through and pre-drill. So it does happen for sure. So there's going to be some sites where you're looking to do ground improvement. Clay is soft. All of a sudden, wick trains aren't appropriate. What are some of the ground improvement techniques you're considering? We've talked about this on the show with, with others and actually some of your colleagues as well. So what are some of the things in your bag of tricks there? Keeping in mind that wicks are used for typically treating soft clays. So talking about soft and compressible clays, I'll narrow it down to very soft clays because those are the most problematic. For very soft clays, if wicks aren't appropriate, then, you know, at Menard, we would typically look first to the CMC rigid inclusion. And the reason I say rigid inclusion as opposed to some other techniques like perhaps stone columns or aggregate piers is that for soft clays, there are issues with confinement or maybe I'll say lack of confinement. So in soft clays, they can be problematic for stone columns or aggregate systems because those types of systems rely on the confinement of the surrounding soils. 
So if you have a very soft zone, when you go to load the, the stone column, it can tend to bulge, right, and spread. And that's where you get settlement or, or worse, you have possibly a rupture of the column. If wicks aren't appropriate for a soft clay site or very soft clay site, I'd, I'd say we'd first look at uh, rigid inclusions. And rigid inclusions, I know you've talked about them on other podcasts, but they're grouted elements. So basically, you know, we would drill down into the ground and we install an element that's typically between 12 and 18 inches and it's grouted. So it sets up to be very stiff. So you don't have the same issues with confinement that you would have with stone or aggregate systems. And uh, they do really well spanning across or, or reinforcing you know, soft clays, organic silts, other organic soils. And what do you think are some of the biggest challenges if you, when you're installing wick trains? And you hit on some of these, but what do you think are some of the biggest challenges? One would be the penetrability. So when we receive a, a set of borings to review for either a bid or you know, while we're doing consultation, we look at the blow counts or if there's strength tests or perhaps CPTs, whatever form that information is in. The first thing we're looking at is how stiff are these soils and are we going to be able to penetrate with the mandrel? I'll keep this in terms of SPTN values. Once you get you know, above 10 or certainly 15 blows per foot, when you get into, you know, much stiffer soils, it is very difficult to penetrate. And so at that point, you might be looking at pre-drilling or other means of assisting the mandrel to penetrate. Number one challenge would be penetrability of the soils, and that's typically based on how stiff they are, right? There's a couple other issues that we would face as installers. One would be, can we get the wick trains to anchor? So we install wicks by you know, pushing down the steel tube or mandrel into the ground. And when we get down to our target depth, we start retracting the mandrel. Now at the bottom of the mandrel and at the bottom of the wick, we loop the wick train through a, an anchor plate or through an anchor rebar. And so as we pull the mandrel up, that anchor needs to grab onto the surrounding soils. And that's what keeps the wick train in place. If the soils are too soft in the anchoring zone, then we won't be able to anchor. We won't be able to grab onto those soils and we'll just pull the wick train up as we're pulling the mandrel out of the ground. So anchoring would be a second issue. And then the third issue, also related to anchoring, but that gives us problems for another reason, would be artesian pressures. So if we hit an artesian layer, and that's where you have basically confined pressures, and when you breach the layer, you would have a upflow of water at a high velocity, right? So artesian pressures, sometimes you see that water coming up at the surface, and that's problematic for wick trains, not just for the installation, but you may never get the wick trains to shut off if you penetrate a, an artesian layer. For that second one, I mean, what do you do for that? If, if you have an issue with the anchoring, I mean, what can be done? There's a, a couple of tricks to the trade. Uh, the first thing we would look at is using a larger anchor. So the typical anchor is just a small, flexible, basically sheet metal plate that kind of crimps around the mandrel and forms a cup. But we can look at larger anchors, like we've incorporated form ties, so steel ties that would reach out and grab the soil. So we've incorporated that. We've tried using multiple anchor plates when we have trouble with uh, anchoring. And then another thing that we can do is keep the mandrel full of water. 
so to provide a head. So that helps prevent the migration of mud up into the mandrel. So there's a few things that we can do, but they all add time and cost to the installation process. And are there any safety concerns from working with foot trains that need to be kind of considered? As always, you know, safety is of utmost importance. So that's probably the most important question that you've asked, although they've all been very good and interesting questions. Uh, so from a safety point of view, I wouldn't necessarily say that you know, any of these issues are unique, let's say, to WIC trains, but a few things that come to mind would be we're working with a very tall mass. So typically, the mast height is about 10 feet taller than the depth of the WIC train. And we do WIC trains you know, to depths of well over 100 feet. We've done them to depths of 160 feet or so. And so when you have a mast that high, that, that means a couple of things. You know, one is you need to be very careful with overhead utilities, you know, high power lines, any sort of lines that are uh, above head, right? And then the second thing would be we need a large machine to support that equipment. So it's going to be a large, heavy tracked excavator typically. And we're working typically at sites with soft soil. And you had brought up working platforms before, and working platforms are, are an issue certainly with not just wick drains and not just ground improvement, but also you know most of the deep foundation techniques as well. That's certainly an issue for us as well. Installing wicks would be the working platform. Anytime we're penetrating the ground with wick trains or any other deep foundation or ground improvement technique, uh, buried utilities would also be a concern. And about um, working platforms, you know, I'm just really pleased to see that there's been some really great developments in the United States through DFI and other cooperating organizations with respect to working platforms. There's been some great guidance that's been developed. There's a lot more information available now, and I would encourage the listener to reach out, get involved with those organizations, but at a minimum, track down the information that's available for working platforms because it's really a problem that uh, has not gone away. We're working to address it in the industry, and uh, we're making good strides. We still have some work to do, but at a minimum, at this point, there's some good guidance and documentation available in the industry. So I'd encourage folks to get a hold of that information and educate themselves with respect to working platforms. Well, before we take our break, would love it if you could share your final piece of advice that you're giving to engineers. And again, some of the listeners are the ones that are specifying WIC dreams. So what are some things they should be thinking about? And some of this advice, you know, might carry over to other techniques, you know, not just ground improvement, but uh, any construction technique. For the specifications, I would do my due diligence to make sure that what you're specifying is practical, not just that it can be put down in the specifications and shown on plans, but it's buildable and it's practical and that it's uh, a good cost-effective approach. And so I would encourage people to reach out to specialty contractors. So that could be whether it's for wick trains or for piling, you know, talk to your piling contractor, your ground improvement contractors to get specialty contractor involvement. And I think that can really benefit and can really help you kind of walk through the project, make sure that what you're putting in the plans and specifications is practical and you know, if you get the contractor involved early enough, you know, they might come up with an alternate or other solution that might make a lot of sense for the project. 
at uh, Menard, you know, we're always happy to take calls from engineers to discuss feasibility, to look at how practical a solution is, to offer budgetary pricing. So we're happy to do it, as I'm sure others are. And uh, I would suggest that taking the time, taking the effort to reach out and get a specialty contractor involved, that would be the advice for those uh, specifying WIC trains and other techniques. Well, we're going to come back in just a minute and close this one out with Marty in our career factor safety end segment. Stick around. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. It's time for our career factor safety end segment. So welcome back. And in geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Martin Taubi, Vice President of Business Development at Menard USA. Marty, you've already had a very successful career. And when you look back on your career, what's one thing you implemented into your career to give yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? Certainly in my career, I've been really fortunate to have worked at some great organizations. I've been, I'd say, more fortunate to have had some really great mentors, you know, and people in leadership positions that have helped me along the way. I'll tell you that something that has helped me in terms of what I can control, and that would be to always consider getting outside of my comfort zone. So we can sometimes fall back into you know just wanting to do the same thing over and over again because that's what we're comfortable with. And for me, I probably had my greatest advancement and probably most fulfilling assignments because I was willing to get outside of my comfort zone and do things that I wasn't comfortable with at the time. Specifically, what happened with me, I initially, in the earlier part of my career, I was working in geotechnical and environmental consulting. And when I was in my late 30s, I had an opportunity to make a career change to do business development for a specialty construction company. And that was Nicholson Construction uh, here in Pittsburgh. I made that move and it was a very uncomfortable move for me because I uh, had no experience with specialty, or I should say maybe I had a, a little, a very small amount of experience with specialty geotechnical construction, and I had no experience with business development. And so I had an opportunity to make a wholesale career change, and I did it. And so I left a position and company that I was very comfortable with. And it ended up being just a really great move for me. I can tell you for at least the first year at Nicholson, I was a fish out of water. I was extremely uncomfortable, but I stuck it out and I persevered. And there's some great people there that helped me along the way with mentoring and 
bringing me up to speed with what the company does. So I took a chance and it really paid off for me. And I've enjoyed a really nice career in business development since that point. But the overlying concept is whether it's business development or whether it's doing anything else that you're not accustomed to or comfortable with, take the chance, put yourself out there. I typically don't turn down an assignment. So if I'm asked to do something, even if it's you know something that I'm not super comfortable with, I'll typically take it on for the challenge. I would just advise, you know, embrace the challenge. You'll get past the discomfort and it'll make you a better engineer or professional. That would be my advice, Jared. Well, Marty, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for sharing all the great insights with us. You share some great information and advice I know it's going to be helpful for our listeners. Now, if someone is listening or watching and wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to reach you? You want to share an email address or are you on social media? How can they find Marty? The way to find me would be uh, either through LinkedIn. So I am LinkedIn. Feel free to connect if we're not connected already. Or I can give you my email address, which would be mtaube, that's M-T-A-U-B-E at menardusa.com. That's M-E-N-A-R-D-U-S-A.com. Thank you so much for coming on. This is great. Thanks, Jared. Great talking to you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 53, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineer endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.